Welcome to the EIM Global Podcast, the place where we speak to experts from across education, academia, and industry, so we can contribute to the professional conversations happening in our community now. The discussions we have and insights shared by guests help develop our own thinking and work, and hopefully spark further dialogue for other educators too, as they reflect on their practice and the students they work with. Today's episode welcomes Dr. Gerard Coleman to the podcast. Dr. Coleman is currently a school practitioner fellow at the Education University of Hong Kong, as well as working with Cambridge University, and before that was a senior research fellow at the Melbourne Graduate School of Education. Dr. Coleman has a rich background in education spanning many decades, during which time he has been a classroom teacher, school leader, policy advisor to governments and systems of schools, as well as a researcher. In this wide-ranging episode, we talk about the nuances of changed leadership, responses and challenges posed to schools by the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as some of Dr. Coleman's thoughts about the future of education, both opportunities and challenges. So enough from me, let's jump into the episode right now. Dr. Jared Coleman, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm very well, Crispin. Thank you very much for the invitation to be with you. Oh, we're, we're excited to have you on and, and to have a chat today about your research and, and thoughts on, on school leadership and leadership generally in, in particular. Where, where are you today? I'm back in my base in Melbourne, I'm happy to say, in the middle of winter. So we're we're having a particularly chilly period. Uh, you were saying before we actually jumped on the recording that you'd, you'd just come back from the UK, so usually fairly cold over there, but it sounds like this time it might have been a bit warmer. Yeah, lovely. It was a lovely summer, the bit that I experienced of it, so it was very therapeutic, I have to say. Very nice. So for the listeners that aren't familiar with you or, or your work, well, of course, you were over in the UK visiting Cambridge and, and doing some work that you're associated with uh, Cambridge University on, but you're also a, a school practitioner fellow at the Education University of Hong Kong, if I get that right. And then prior to that, uh, working with the, the Melbourne Graduate School of Education as a senior research fellow there. But I'm also told that prior to that, a lengthy and experienced career in, in a number of different roles within education. So in, in schools themselves, in school leadership, policy advisory work as well, I think. So thinking about that that journey, it'd be great perhaps to just share a little bit for listeners, you know, on, on how you moved through those roles and, and ended up, you know, with your interests and the work that you're doing now. Yes, I, I have to admit, Christmas, I was a bit surprised this morning when I was reflecting back on that time that it's it now spans six decades or it's into its sixth decade. So <laughs> that accounts for why I'm feeling so old, perhaps, because it, it might be true. It, it accounts for your wisdom, Jared, surely. <laughs> Maybe. It's, we'll see. So, yeah, so I suppose I started in a conventional apprenticeship model of teaching, you know, and worked through these various levels of classroom teacher to program manager to faculty head and head of year level and deputy head and head of school. So the sort of gradations that you go through in that apprenticeship model. Uh, I had the opportunity to to step out when I was doing my doctoral studies and I went worked at the university for four years, the University of Melbourne. But it was after that that uh, I, I had an opportunity to work rather than in a single school, to work in a system of schools. And in Victoria, we have government schools and Catholic schools, both systemic schools, and then there are the independent schools. And I was working as a policy advisor and researcher for that organisation. And it was then that I was given the opportunity to broaden that vision from, you know, the single school managing tensions and improvements to actually thinking about system-wide improvement. 
and the early 2000s was a period of great uh, demand for accountability, you know, data, information, schools needing to perform and demonstrate performance. So it was a lovely opportunity to work with a group of 220 very diverse schools in the independent sector. And I had the, the pleasure of really working, A, in firstly the area of leadership and designing a suite of um, programs for leaders of independent schools. Um, because of the research that was coming out at the time, you know, telling us how important school leaders were to student outcomes. The other side of my work with them was looking at developing a framework for measuring school performance. So we did that. Uh, and so that was that sort of data-informed school improvement approach that was, was very, you know, heavily part of the, the, the landscape at that stage. And so that broadening of that gave me a chance to work in those two fields. And I, I coupled that with my work at the university in evaluation. So I was trained in evaluation theory and practice and applied that in educational settings. So those three sort of areas enabled me to, to sort of build a repertoire of skills in leadership development, in research, and uh, school improvement strategies and also in school evaluation strategies. So those three things have melded over time to sort of take me into university work in Hong Kong, also at Cambridge University where we've developed school improvement models um, and also in my sort of private consulting work as it touches on each of those domains by and large. Yeah. So it's been an interesting journey and one that I hadn't really anticipated. Once I was in schools, I thought I would always stay in schools. And have you found as that, that scope, I suppose, widened and the opportunity to think um, and work with systems of schools as opposed to individual schools, have you found the thinking, the things that work, the leadership lessons, if you, if you like, to be different at that level? Are there key things that you would you would point out or highlight as, as quite unique in, in one setting rather than the other when thinking about effective leadership? Yes, I was very interested in the literature around what constitutes effective practice, <clears throat> particularly towards the end of 2009, 2010, 2011. There was a lot of literature talking about the impact of leadership and what sort of practices were appropriate for, for schools. And I was given the opportunity with the International Baccalaureate to actually be part of a team to develop a suite of um, leadership developments, which they didn't have a framework for leadership development. They had a lot of programmatic development. But that really took me into the space of, you know, are there such things as universal attributes of leadership or are, they, are there particular dimensions of leadership that are culturally specific so when we started that journey of looking at what constitutes effective leadership, of course, we were exposed to the Western anglicised world, UK, Britain, Australia, New Zealand, US, and the literature that was emanating from that. Uh, it was much harder for us, of course, to access literature coming out of China or South America uh, or, or even some of the developing countries. But given the global nature of the IB, we really had to look at some of the local literature to try to get a sense of, well, what does it mean to be an effective practitioner if, if you're in a paternalistic society such as Iran or in um, in Russia, for example, you know, if you're in a, an Eastern culture, you know, to what extent does that impact on leadership practices? And so that journey was really interesting to see how culture impacts 
practice, that is, because of the expectations largely of of those people whom we seek to lead and their expectations of what a leader is informs the sort of ways in which we need to operate in order to be more effective. So certain countries, uh, you know, where a democratic approach to leadership is or a devolved approach to leadership is evident, um, being in that setting would would ask of its leaders to think carefully about the context and the people whom you're leading in order to be effective to try and be dictatorial or, you know, in those settings would yield resistance and be largely ineffective. It's, of course, compounded in that international setting by having a disparate group of people. You know, you're not talking about monocultures, you know, you're talking about highly complex intercultural settings of teachers and parents and students. So you've got these multiple layers. Um, So, yeah, so that was a very interesting period looking at particularly culture, you know, while some of the other strands of leadership practice around strategy having a vision, being able to articulate a vision, being able to build teams of people, you know, while lots of those attributes of leadership were consistent across boundaries, um, the cultural aspect was the one that actually made a big difference to how we shaped our training and how we proposed ways for understanding culture and and helping leaders to be more effective in those settings. Fascinating. I suppose what it does is it it serves to highlight you know, the nuance, the subtleties that, that are often buried within these things. And it's very easy for us to pull a, a change model or a leadership model, for example, off the shelf and follow that step by step and assuming that if you do that, it's all going to work out okay. It's just a matter of, of meeting the, the appropriate stages, you know, as designed. But actually, that's to really miss, I suppose, so much potential subtlety in there. As you said, in, in the international context, you know, potentially even more challenging given that, uh, you know, you, the mix of cultures that you have there. And the, your point um, makes me think particularly about the last couple of years with, with COVID. But you think about even the there isn't a monoculture of the kinds of teachers, for example, in some of the schools we're working with. But when you add then students and parents, of course, that themselves come from a range of cultures, depending on where the school happens to be and, and so on, the complexity of that suddenly then becomes extraordinarily complex uh, and challenging, I, I would imagine. I mean, given that, were you able to reach a point where, where you distilled some things that that might help guide or frame reflection for leaders in those kinds of situations? I mean, other than, as you said, you know, some things that perhaps hold true through all of that, you know, like obviously being able to articulate the vision and so forth, but things things that take into consideration or at least attempt to that, that nuanced, complex culture. Was there anything that you would say is common, I suppose? Yes, I think we had an approach that we talked about a range of leadership intelligences, thinking about Leadership as a cognate activity, you know, it, it's uh, it's not really just a visceral sort of response, but rather an informed and intelligent approach to the leadership. And while, as you say, some of those areas were common, you know, having a strategic intelligence or a problem-solving intelligence or entrepreneurial, you know, whatever you might call it, but the, the point of difference for us was actually thinking deeply about the context and understanding the context before embarking on decision-making and, you know, so understanding the people whom you seek to lead much more purposefully. So we provided a framework for that, for people to work through that uh, and try to make sense of what might 
what might work. You know? So it was, tr you know, truly reflective and it required those sort of attributes of leadership, ones that didn't just assume that we knew how to proceed or we knew what would work here, but rather had to ask good questions about, you know, what sort of world am I working in? What do we know about success? What does it look like? How will we, how will we manage that with our particular cohort of you know, people diverse as they are so it was a much more reflective approach to leadership rather than a sort of a top-down approach that said I know I know the answers here and we're going to all go on this journey together so we saw lots of cases where that model failed in international settings in particular and as you said the transportability of national frameworks which were very common there are hundreds of national frameworks of leadership development but we found that none of them really transported themselves into that international setting and, and that was why we embarked on that journey too. And, and in the end I think what we were doing was hypothesizing that we think these are the critical attributes that you're going to need if you are going to be successful in leading a school in an international context. We don't yet know whether that model is working. You know, we, we've instituted the model, we've developed the leadership practices and frameworks and training, but the proof will be, you know, several years in the, in the making. One of the things that you said there which, which strikes me as particularly true and important, I suppose, in my experience throughout the last couple of years navigating the pandemic, um, as, as many obviously people have done in systems is this idea of well context of course being important but being reflective and asking the right questions because what what i think we found and, and colleagues across the im found was of course that lots of things that we were perhaps good at and, and had assumed to be the case just simply didn't hold true at least on the face of it as we moved into some of the challenges that the pandemic threw at us. And so we had to be constantly re-evaluating, you know, the assumptions that we were making, I think. Um, and of course, not only that, but because the context in which we were doing that was also rapidly evolving, it wasn't as if, okay, we're now looking at a new context and landscape, let's let's figure out what this looks like. But actually, the landscape was almost different week to week in, in some ways. Now, I know that, that you've obviously done some work with us and, and a, a lot of thinking and work with many in the education space over the last couple of years as, as we've all navigated those challenges. Is there anything particular that you observed or you, you thought worked uh, from a leadership perspective through that particularly challenging period? And it may be the things that you've already talked about, but I wonder whether there was anything that was just different because of the particular circumstances in which you know everyone was leading. Yes, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I think the pillars of good practice have re remained the same from a leadership perspective, but the emphasis has shifted. So if I think about the work of a colleague, Rob Gordon, who's a clinical psychologist coming out of the University of Melbourne, and he deals with uh, trauma. His area of specialisation is trauma. So in Australia, that's particularly pertinent. I met Rob um, after the bushfires in 2019-2020. We then had COVID and, of course, some of those communities have now had floods at the end of 21. So he deals a lot with, with trauma. But he talks about, for leaders, uh, two stages. You know, one is that the fight and flight response, you know, where adrenaline kicks in 
you know, there's a threat at hand, got energy, you know, you just have to have to do something. You've got to, you've got to take action. And a lot of our leaders were responding to that. But that second phase that he describes, which is the sort of cortisol mode, where you have heightened arousal over a sustained period of time, where the threat is not quite as explicit, it's not quite clear what the threat is anymore, but the levels of stress remain high and leaders then need to go, you know, went through a period of sustained anxiety and stress where endurance was required because they felt that they were constantly under threat, what you're describing there is a changing on a week-to-week basis. You know, it required high levels of energy, high levels of um, being able to be agile and constantly being ready for something to change, you know. And so it resulted in a sort of pervasive tiredness where people were, and we're still seeing part of that even now, you know, with this tiredness that existed. One of the impacts he talks about of this sort of cortisol stage is that people narrow their focus um, and they, they lose that peripheral vision of the bigger picture. And so the focus, of course, narrows to survival and what do I need to do to get through this, you know? uh, all of which is entirely understandable. Um, he, he says sometimes people lost empathy in that process because they were, were engaged in the day-to-day struggle to, to get things done, you know? But it seems to me that those leaders who were able to see through rather than be constrained by the operational needs were those who were able to move their communities forward into a better space more quickly. So they were in some ways, um, you know, we know about resilience and adaptability and agility Leaders had to make decisions about, you know, what can I control and what can't I control. Um, They had to accept some degree of humility (laughs) that they didn't have all the answers, that they needed other people around them, that ambiguity, you know, is there, you had to deal with it. So there were lots of sort of personal journeys for people. But those who were able to see through beyond the COVID experience uh, and able to, and that's why I talk about the emphases of leadership changed. In some ways, the first was around sustaining the core purpose and as part of that narrative, ensuring that the shared values of the community were being retained. They were not just providing quality education, but are we looking after all the members of our community as we claim to do, you know, not only looking after our our students, but are we looking after our teachers and do we have an eye for our parents because they too are, are being exposed to, to this threat in multiple ways. So those who were able to articulate our core purpose, retaining those core values and use those as guiding principles on a regular basis made, from my observations, perhaps more progress as that, particularly in the post-pandemic era. The second thing that I think they did really well was to distribute leadership in a way that perhaps they hadn't had to do previously. But quite um, genuinely, 
you know, need to give other members of the leadership team and teachers more autonomy and more agency and more responsibility for decision-making and for actions, which, you know, um, despite the burden that that might have been for some, it by and large ended up in a, a more cohesive and more responsible workforce because they were, they were taking responsibility for their actions. You know? and, I, and I think the other thing that they did uh, that was quite difficult, of course, was to try to, to build a school culture and, and focus on the culture of the school. You know, we've had a long time talking about impact and effect and measuring performance and things, but um, we know too the culture of the school, the supportive nature, the need for peer support, the need for, for you know, leadership support, all of those things, building trust, building harmony. Uh, in the community, we're all uh, a focus of the work of the leader uh, to sustain that sort of culture um, throughout that turbulent time. So it seemed to me that they were the three points of emphases that were elevated during that time of COVID. Um, now, that's not to say that they will continue to be the most important. In fact, there are some real challenges ahead as we as we we haven't quite come out of COVID. I think our schools are experiencing quite difficult times now as they deal with less clear parameters around are we in school, are we at, are we at home? You know, there's this blending that's creating some tremendous challenges. So true and... So I'm thinking of, of colleagues uh, across the IM, of course, who with schools in, in China have themselves been back into a remote teaching scenario uh, more recently as well. So certainly not in a post-pandemic situation just yet, whatever that may end up looking like. But 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 really interesting, the three points you make, I think I think I would I would say we we saw, we lived through um, and probably in, in retrospect, in many respects, identified each of those things becoming important. Not to say that we, we saw them beforehand, but they're certainly part of our experience, I think, as we've navigated through these challenges. But just picking up on the, the distributed leadership point that you make, that second one, there's certainly hugely important for us on that journey. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily where we started out, but, it, but it's certainly something that became I think it became the only way, really, given the the way that the system was set up, how how distributed and geographically diverse, and so on, um, with all the changes that were taking place. But it also became a strength. I'd like to ask, though. I mean, in terms of supporting leaders who are then, you know, asked to take on some of that that leadership and make those decisions in that kind of environment, um, giving them that autonomy and agency. What, what advice would you give for for leaders distributing? that kind of uh, decision-making and, and leadership authority? It takes some time for, for many leaders to feel comfortable in that setting, I think. In my observation, those who, who were able to distribute lead, leadership in a gen, genuine way, you know, to, to, to give people trust and responsibility and accountability, did so probably in a way that enabled them to grow as well. So that they they saw it as an opportunity, it, retrospectively perhaps, as an opportunity for them to grow in their understandings of, um, you know, the sort of intrinsic motivation of those with whom they work. And so I suppose it, it comes from a position of trust, in effect, that you, you need to have that positive 
aspect about people and what they're capable of doing and then give them opportunities to, to grow within that, which is not, you know, you're not abandoning ship, you know, you, you're just genuinely creating opportunities for people. But also, you know, being aware that they need support and nurture during that time as well. So it, it, it means that you're not relinquishing but you're rather shifting the emphasis for where you provide your support. So for the leader, I think it's about that nourishing of others, knowing others and, and what they can contribute and pushing them a little bit beyond the sort of boundaries that they might have been used to. We know that that, that happened through need, as you say, but those who are thinking more you know, consciously about developing that in others, it's sort of pushing those boundaries gently like we do with students, you know, beyond the sort of comfort zone, if you like and creating those opportunities. Uh, it's the authenticity of it, I think, that's critical and that it's not tokenistic, that it's not just handing out you know, bad jobs to other people but quite authentically uh, being prepared to say we can do this together, you know, you can take responsibility here and I trust you to do the job. I'm here to support you. So it's it's very much contingent on high-quality sort of relationships that you have about your own, you know, limits, about the capacity of others, the support that you provide uh, and the openness of that relationship. Changing tack here, I suppose, a little bit, but still perhaps building on the conversation about the, the COVID period and so on, but looking ahead now, you know, there's obviously been a, in some ways for some schools, a long period of, I suppose, kind of forced experimentation in some ways with, with different approaches to, to teaching and learning and, and maybe to leadership in some ways, as you've just described. But how do you see some of the things that have been experienced and or lessons learned from that particularly challenging period of time now impacting, as we go forward, the design of schools' day-to-day experiences? Uh, and I guess this is a little bit of that, you know, are we going to go you know, back to the old normal, whatever that was, um, or, or something else. You know, what, what, what would you imagine will happen there? And perhaps what would you like to see? Uh, well, what I would like to see might be quite different from what I think we're going to see. I'd be interested in both. <laughs> so let me talk about two things, not entirely connected, but I think interesting. So one, I think we're facing a, a workforce crisis. So already in international schools we're seeing some difficulties with staffing, people going back to home countries, people deciding that um, being on the international market is not such a great thing anymore and perhaps they should go back to home base. We're seeing a continued increase in the number of international schools, particularly in national, international school settings rather than the old model of international schools. But we are seeing quite a chronic shortage of teachers in national systems. My concern is that it is we are heading towards a crisis of the teaching workforce. So, for example, um, you know, we're projecting that we'll have a shortage of 4,000 teachers nationally in the next three or four years as baby boomers finally retire. What's interesting with uh, of the millennials that we're observing at the moment, and respect to my millennial colleagues, um, a number of them are revisiting the career in light of the COVID experience and their colleagues. So their peers who are working for all sorts of organisations, corporate and otherwise, have actually had their workplace changed 
many of them are working from the office two days a week or three days a week and at home two days a week or three days a week. They've got a very different blend of working and that's being instituted as we thought it might. And so teachers are sort of saying, but my workplace hasn't changed. You know, I'm still required five days a week, evenings, most evenings I'm expected to do some work, Saturdays, etc. And so the, these younger teachers are saying, this is not sustainable. I can't continue doing this work at this level of commitment that you're asking of. Um, it's, it's not uh, comparable to what my peers are doing in their profession. And so they're saying perhaps we need to go elsewhere and do something else and there are lots of options for them at the moment because the employment market is good. So I think this is quite a genuine crisis for leaders in schools to think about how do we now recruit and retain high-quality teachers into a profession that by and large has been resistant to change for decades and decades because we're still using the same model. You know, we might be using different technologies, but we still largely have one teacher and 25 students. And my fear is that if international schools and schools even nationally don't rethink the role of the teacher and her uh, and his um, occupation, then we will continue with this level of attrition. And I think it's one of the great opportunities presented by COVID, but also by the improvements that we've seen in technology and some of the sort of system work that you're talking about, you know, that, that an audit of what is it the technology can do really well and an audit of what it is that this human can do really well and, and where do we bring them together and what does that look like in a way that's different and do I need to be in situ? Are there other ways of managing students in classrooms or groups of students? Uh, do we have ways in which we can create a more personalised approach for teachers to say, you know, I no longer want to work in that regimented style. I'd like to be working in a more fluid, collaborative approach, you know, where I have greater agency. So we talk about agency for students all the time. We rarely talk about teacher agency and autonomy. And while on the one hand we recognise the benefits of collaboration, that doesn't mitigate the, the opportunities that exist with high levels of autonomy and professional autonomy to make judgments about my curriculum, my you know what I, how I'm going to teach it and how I'm going to deliver it and assess it. That taps into the, the uh, you know, the self-determination theory stuff around intrinsic motivation. It's more likely to be sustained when I do feel I have greater control over. So I don't have the answer, but I think, you know, with groups like EIM, there's a real chance to start to break open some of those um, traditional you know, frameworks that exist within schools by inserting technologies and other, um, other facilitative processes uh, that might just start to break open the model that we have in the teaching profession. So I, I see it as urgent and requires some really significant thinking around what that might look like. The other thing I've been thinking about is um, we've talked in international education, particularly in the IB, for example, about international-mindedness for a long time, which is a 
sort of uh, modernist construct that has been around for a long time. And I'm wondering about its relevance or whether it's obsolete as a way of viewing the world. If we were to look at global conflict, we'd have to say that um, education has failed to make the world a better place, you could argue. If we look at the state of the world, now you can't blame education for that, but um, nor has it perhaps been successful. But I've been interested in the work of Hilary uh, Cremins, in particular, the peace education, and their framework is, is quite different because it looks at pillars of inclusion, uh, citizenship, you know, ways in which people work, but it looks at peacekeeping, so peace education has a sort of a peacekeeping dimension of particularly managing conflict in schools as it exists, and we see that there's lots of it, not just peer-to-peer, but sometimes parent to teacher, sometimes student to teacher, sometimes vice versa, you know, there's lots of conflicts that need to be managed. But then there are two frameworks of peace making, and that is building the skills and capacities of people to work through conflict, through um, we see it mediation exercises, we see it where people uh, are developing restorative practices in their, in their schools, etc. Uh, trying to address some of those embedded structural and cultural differences that exist. You know, we we know that there are access issues that people are disadvantaged through that. So there are lots of cultural and social dimensions of our schools that disadvantage particular groups. And so the sort of peace-making side of it has has been conscious about that and building the skills. And then the third element is peace-building, and it's actually a more constructive role for, uh, you know, not only being at peace with yourself but being at peace with your community and how do I work with a global organisation, et cetera, et cetera. So it's quite an interesting construct in, called positive peace education and I wonder whether it has more relevance in our contemporary society than perhaps the notion of international mindedness. So they're my sort of two challenges at the moment that I'm thinking about, you know, how do we restructure the job uh, for teachers, but also in that global context is that, you know, there's a degree of passivity about international mindedness. Do we need to be more active and more upfront about peacemaking, building and keeping? Just just two small things to think about there then, Jared. <laughs> I think uh, I keep saying this to guests, guests we have on, but uh, your second point about international mindedness and, and, and the thinking there, that sounds like, again, a, a whole other podcast to, to get into. It's, it's a huge area. But, but I was really interested on the first point that you made to hear you say what you did, because I think that's very much the way certainly I think about it. And I think we at EIM are, are thinking about some of these challenges that, that we've both faced, but also now had some opportunity to reflect on as we move forward. And, and your point about, you know, the, the traditional model effectively um, being, a, I suppose, a, a restrictive structure in some respects. But the question we have to ask or questions we have to ask is, you know, does that still need to be there? Does it still function for the purpose it was originally uh, designed to, or at least, you know, which bits of it do and perhaps don't? And, and your point about, you know, thinking about the learning that we've experienced over the last couple of years, it's not that all of that was necessarily better than by any means what was going on. But there's, a, there's an important conversation to be had about, well, okay, what did we learn? Which bits were interesting and could could be doing um, 
or could facilitate things differently. Although I love the lens that you've used there coming at this from the perspective of, of teacher agency. And again, we talk a lot about student agency and putting learning into the hands of students and thinking about what it means for them. But, but you know, actually, that's a, a hugely important point there to think about our experience as, as teachers effectively in, in that. And in the same way, think about what some of the opportunities that we've experienced or, or could now leverage might actually mean. And one, one thing that struck me as particularly interesting is that uh, here in Singapore, actually, the, the Singapore government, if I get this right, has actually now, I guess in a similar sort of way, moved to or is moving to a system where one day a fortnight students, at least in secondary schools, will learn you know, from home online for a number of reasons they're thinking about that. But that's not a, a pandemic um, sticking plaster, as it were. That's now what they would say is part of the new norm, um, you know, for, for a number of reasons. So I think that's one example, but and taken at, at system level, uh, national system level, of course. And so you know, that's not to say that that would be right for us, but it's really interesting to see other people starting to wrestle with those kinds of model questions, the structure of the whole underpinning rather than, you know, as you said, tinkering with a bit of technology here or, or, or there, which doesn't quite get to the heart of it. And, and I think um, it is challenging for international schools and independent schools because you have a fee-paying cohort of parents and, uh, uh, you know, making changes to the model means that they, they need to be brought along with that. But I think there's just some really interesting times ahead when we can start to explore some of those things and um, there will be better minds than mine who will come up with quite creative solutions, I think. But I think we owe it to the profession to to maintain that momentum rather than just slip back and hope that we go back to pre-COVID conditions because that would be retrograde in some respects because I think we've, we've learned a lot that we can actually help us and, navigate the future yeah i couldn't agree more and uh, i think this this little podcast and, and some of the other work that's happening across the iam is exactly aimed at, at trying to continue these conversations without saying by any means that that we have all the answers we certainly don't but i think involving uh, our educators involving the expertise across the, the community and beyond it which is why talking to people like yourself is is so important we think in those conversations i think has got to be um, a better way forward than not having those conversations, regardless of the fact that we don't yet know what a future might end up looking like. So shaping it's important. One one more thing, Gerald, I'd like to pick your brains on a, a little bit, you know, and thinking as we, we move towards the end of our, our time on the podcast together today. But, you know, we've touched on technology in, in a number of ways and obviously talked about it most recent moments about the whole structure of education potentially being changed by it, or at least in some ways. I know that you've also done work in the last few years, I suppose, going back a little way, but looking at, I think it was Web 2.0 at the time and so on, but thinking particularly about, it was Web, web 3.0 we're talking about now, isn't it? But <laughs> thinking about, uh, it'll be 4.0 before you know it, thinking about the the potential there for students uh, in terms of higher order thinking, metacognitive awareness, driving collaboration and, and, and so on. Um, I'd just be really interested in in your thoughts, I suppose, on, on the potential for that? Because I think sometimes, you know, and it's, it's true that it does, technology can get in the way of some of those things. And in fact, it can also overemphasize or over-index on pedagogical practices that we don't necessarily think are that effective, or, or perhaps technology being added to them makes them less effective. But I'd be really interested in, in your thoughts on the potential there for that, I guess, student ownership of learning, engagement that comes with that. Um, and before you, you gather your thoughts on that, I mean, 
for me, I suppose, one of the, the really interesting things, and you can come at this from lots of different angles, is if you think about the world uh, and the experience that students in our schools inhabit today outside of those schools and the way that they navigate and use technology and the experiences that they have. And then coming into schools, you know, how able are they to leverage those skills and continue that in a relatively seamless sense? I think in some areas, possibly, but in others, probably not. So just really interested, I think, in, in what those technologies that are around today, in your view, uh, can enable, can facilitate in, in that kind of area? I don't know that I have a particularly insightful response for you, Crispin. I think I struggle with the progress that we've made. So happily, you know, the COVID has actually moved things along. We were at a plateau stage where, you know, for 20 years been, we'd been working with teachers in classrooms and made little difference really in terms of what they did. I do think that there's a parallel to happen here is if we are going to give thought to how teachers and learning can change in the classroom, that has to be augmented by the technology and that's likely to create those opportunities. I don't think they're going to happen in isolation. We still have schools in this country that are banning telephones, for example, in schools and you know that you only need some media coverage about some of the dangers and parents being upset and you get a retrospective, a retrograde sort of move to, uh, to shut it all down. So, so there's a whole lot of education that needs to go on there. I do see students navigating technology but not necessarily able to use it effectively in the learning space. So we have a major role to play in facilitating you know, deep learning with technology rather than rapid, quick responses. Um, and so we're still going to need you know, the, the expert teacher to know how to use technology. And I, and I don't think we spend enough time in our preparation of teachers uh, exploring how they can leverage technology in a way that supports learning rather than how do we use technology on the side to make it look like we're using it. You know? um, so I, I think that's the challenge for us as educators is to think about, what, you know, in terms of preparing teachers for the future, how do we, you know, help them make sense of a broad range of technologies that actually they can see makes a difference, that can do some things better than what they do. So I think that's one of the challenges. It's certainly uh, an interesting, I think in many ways, an exciting time to, to be an educator, to have the opportunity to reflect on those possibilities. And But you're quite right. What, what is that augmentation look like and, and again for me without saying there's a clear answer to that i'm absolutely certain that educators need to be at the center of that driving that conversation um, rather than in some cases you know other organizations or interests that have their own um, you know motivations behind that so for me educators got to be absolutely central to that conversation and again i think this is partly what what we're trying to to position and, and drive uh, across eim as a conversation jared thank you so much for your time today. So much in here, as as always when we we talk. And as I said, the, at least one, probably two further podcasts, and and that's just on what you're working on now. So who knows uh, what it'll be in in another year's time or so. But for listeners who um, you know have have had interest peaked in in this conversation and some of the things you shared, how can they uh, follow your work, get in touch, or follow up with you? Certainly, you know the LinkedIn is a very easy way to to contact me. Uh, alternatively, an email, I'll, which is Jared at kissit.net, but I can send that through to you so that people can see that if, they, if they're a program notes. 
doing happy notes, yeah. people contact me and um, continue the conversation. I'd be delighted to be part of those conversations if people felt there were some things they'd like to share with me. Fabulous. Well, well Gerard, uh, thank you so much again for your time today. I know you've you've got a bit of a sore throat as well, so it's uh, it's very kind of you to, to to keep to the schedule and um, you know as well on your way back. Probably a bit jet lagged, I suppose, coming back from the UK too. So <laughs> um, I can't find the jet lag. <laughs> well, thank you, and I, and I look forward to uh, following up and, and chatting again in the near future. Take care. So that was Dr. Gerard Collin. Thank you, Gerard, for joining us on the podcast and sharing your thoughts and research findings with us. Don't forget, you can follow up with Gerard via LinkedIn or email linked in the show notes. And until our next episode, thank you for listening. And don't forget to follow or subscribe so you can stay in touch. We look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now.